0: Isaiah 48. I'd like to uh, read the first couple of verses and then uh, have you all pray with me. Isaiah 48, begin, beginning verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah... Who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, is his name. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we pray that you would anoint us and bless us tonight with your Holy Spirit and grant us, O God, your wisdom and understanding of this passage. We desire, Lord, to allow it to penetrate our hearts. If need be, Lord God, bring conviction to our hearts. Certainly may it challenge us all as believers in Jesus Christ. And possibly awaken us, Lord, if need be, to the times in which we live and how we need to live yielded and surrendered lives to you. And so we pray that your word, Lord, in this chapter of Isaiah will will stir our hearts to live for you with abandon, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come now to the conclusion of a section that began in chapter 45. Which dealt primarily with the conquest and the overthrow of Babylon, and also dealt with King Cyrus of Persia. Within this particular chapter of Isaiah, we will find the last mention of Cyrus, even though it isn't by name, and nonetheless, uh, his work is mentioned. From here on out, the focus is going to be upon the children of Israel. And more particularly, the children of Judah. But what we have seen and heard through much of these chapters, in chapters 45 through 48, is the Lord saying, I am the Lord, and there is none else. I am the Lord, and there's no one else beside me. There was no one else like me. There's no one else who is God and this was not only to be significant to the understanding of the people of babylon and of cyrus and remember of course that the prophecy itself came about 200 years before cyrus or about 150 years but 200 years before babylon comes to being so great that god is going to deal with babylon and because of that because of that time frame that the, the children of Judah will be in captivity there in Babylon. So it's not that he's saying that I am the Lord and there's none else just for Babylon and for Cyrus. Judah, in particular, and all of Israel, was to know this about their God. We are to know that God is alone God and there is no other. And we have to know this so that we might live our lives according to His sovereignty, according to His providence, according to His power, according to His grace. And so, Judah was without excuse. Israel was without excuse. And may I say that we are to be without excuse also. I am. I have to interject. This is probably earlier than I wanted to interject this, but I'm I'm really concerned about movements within the church, like what is called the emerging church or emergent church today, that only wants to have dialogue and conversations about God, but doesn't really draw people to this God that we see in the Bible, because they begin to lessen and cheapen what the Bible says about God and about His plans and about His purposes. And when God says, I am the Lord and there is none else, you cannot begin conversations by saying, well, you know, God, God, needs, God is probably more open than, than, than those Christians who just read the Bible. Now folks, this is, this is Christians talking this way. Or so-called Christians. But saying, but you know, there has to be a little bit more openness to a lot of other ways. Folks, that is not the way we as believers are supposed to speak about God, who is alone God, and there is none else. So I want to bring attention to that thought today. But like I said, I probably brought it about a little earlier than I wanted to, but I I think just hearing about this and realizing that this is a serious matter. What we know and believe about God and what we know and believe about Jesus Christ and what we know and believe about what they have said to us through the Holy Spirit is of utmost importance in eternal matters to each and every one of us here as well as to those that we witness and testify of Jesus Christ. So, with that in mind, in these first two verses here, the prophet Isaiah is contrasting image and reality. There is an image being given to us about Judah, but there's also reality being given. And so he's contrasting image and reality to expose the hypocrisy of Israel. What we read in verse 1 sounds pretty good, except for the last phrase. Because notice, they're called the house of Jacob. Hear this, O house of Jacob. Who are called by the name of Israel and have come from the wellsprings of Judah. Who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel. So far so good. Doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with some of these designations of Israel. But now we get to the last phrase of verse 1 and it says there, But not in truth or in righteousness. You see, think of it this way. They have the name of Israel, but not the character of Israel. They have the name of Israel, but not the character of Israel. And folks, we can transfer that thought into this way. Some people have the name of Christian, but not the character of a Christian. It's not a matter of just having a name. It is a matter of having the fullness of the character of Christ in our lives being expressed being lived out out in our lives. So so they have this name of Israel, but not the character of Israel. Consider how they were identified in the first phrase as the hint. Here's the hint. Oh, house of Jacob. Do you know what God is saying when He calls them that? Do you know what the name Jacob means? The name Jacob means cheater. It means (laughs) deceiver. It means thief. Oh, you house of thieves. That's what He's calling them. Now they might be called the name of Israel, but it doesn't fit because the name Israel means governed by God. And they were living lives that didn't ex- that didn't express, that didn't show, that didn't give evidence of them being governed by God. They showed much of the time that they were more like Jacob, that thief, cheat, deceiver. Then, like Israel, one who is governed by God. And if you think that God through the prophet was being a bit more complimentary by mentioning Judah, I want you to think again. Because there he says, and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah. Why does he bring this up? We think, well, that's okay. Well, you know, the name Judah means praise, doesn't it? But there's a reminder given to them of their ancestor Judah. You see, from the wellsprings of Judah, there was something about this Judah here that God is trying to remind them about. There's a reminder given to them of their ancestor Judah here concerning Judah's cruelty and immorality. Now please, if you will, turn to Genesis chapter 37 for just a moment. For there in Genesis chapter 37, we have an account where the brothers...
1: Of Joseph
0: have a plot to get rid of Joseph. They don't like their brother. They consider him to be a, a snitch and uh, somebody who's kind of high on himself, you know. So the, 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 the first plot, you know, plot A is, was, well, let's just kill him. Uh, you might think that it was uh, nice of Judah to say this in verse 26. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him <laughs> to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brothers listen. So, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a matter of saying, No, let's not kill him, let's take him, and let's love him, and let's do the right thing. No, they said, Well, let's sell him. <laughs> That's not nice. <laughs> That's not a good character, is it? A good character a trait, you know, to take uh, your brother and sell him to the Ishmaelites. I mean, after the Ishmaelites take him, they could do anything to them that they wanted to, right? So you're just leaving them, you know, to whatever happens and all. And if you think that's not bad enough, then you go to the next chapter when it talks about Judah's immorality. And I don't want to even spend any time with that. You need to read it yourself in Genesis 38. But he... Kind of goes out and, you know, messes around and eventually he has a daughter and the daughter grows up and eventually the daughter goes out and acts like the harlot and, well, you know the story if you know it. And if not, read, this, read Genesis 38. But that's Judah. That's whom the Lord is referring. Or to whom the Lord is referring. And so God saw through the image to the reality. The image of the people of Judah. He saw through that image to the real heart of the people, in effect, he was telling them that they were hypocritical in using his name and identifying with his city, because it says that you know that they identify with the city. They swear by the name of the Lord. Uh, verse uh, two says, "For they call themselves after the holy city. Oh, we are of you know Zion. We are of Jerusalem." But you see, they were using his name and identifying with his city, but they were not obeying his will. It was not in truth or in righteousness that they took the Lord's name and identified with the holy city. But they only gave the appearance of leaning on the God of Israel. Again, you look at verse 2, and it says they call themselves after the holy city, lean on the God of Israel. They they were, you know, it was just kind of a, a token leaning upon God. It's it's as if to say that as they, you know, followed through with their rituals and their rites and their and their offerings, they did it, but... Were their hearts really in it? God is the one that knows the hearts. God would know that they weren't really in it. Their hearts weren't right with God. God knew that. So they are told that they are without excuse. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. God says, I've declared the former things from the beginning. In other words, I have declared former things from the beginning. As if to say, I spoke of certain things from the beginning that would happen later. I've declared the former things from the beginning, they went forth from my mouth. You know, to the Lord everything's former, in that particular sense. But they're also past, which is former. But they're also future, because He's eternal. So He's former and He's future. But here He says, I declared the former things from the beginning, they went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly, I, uh, I did them, and they came to pass. In other words, I prophesied, and then they would come to pass. Because I knew that you were obstinate, hard, stiff-necked. And your neck was an iron sinew, and your brow bronze. Because I knew this of you. Even from the beginning I have declared it to you. I continue to tell you that I can tell you things that will happen in the future, and they will happen. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say... My idol has done them, and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. So time and again, God gave His people unquestionable evidence, undeniable evidence of His power to declare the future prophetically. And He did this because He knew how stubborn and how hard-headed they were. Now, that's not any description of any of us here, is it? Stubborn, hard-headed stiff neck I always like that uh, picture of a stiff neck because really it's, it's, applied, it's applied to an animal like a donkey a beast of burden you know that is uncooperative that when it is pulled in this direction it goes in the other direction that's the stiff neck you see the master says come this way and the animal says no and he goes back and he stiffs, stiffens his neck And so there's some sense of that being given to us here. They were unwilling to bend. And and being stiff of neck proved how much like a stubborn donkey or beast of burden they were. And then here's another image that we're not often too familiar with. The image of a bronze brow. A bronze brow is interesting here because it carries the idea of being unable or unwilling to blush. A, a, A brow that can't change color. It's said in the color that it is, you know. So uh, bronze, you know, has often been used as a, as a, uh, as a symbol of judgment in, in the Old Testament and whatnot. So it's interesting that it's called a bronze brow. But, but it carries that idea of being unable or unwilling to blush. Not being ashamed of things that you should be ashamed of. Not being ashamed of things that you should be ashamed of. You see, this hits us today. Because there are people that are not ashamed of certain things that are happening around in the world, you know. The internet, the media, the movies. It's amazing what shames us today. Or at least should shame us. But it doesn't with some people. Oh, they say, well, that's just the way it is, you know. Well, it's not so bad. Who hasn't seen this? Who hasn't seen that? But it should shame us. This idea is found in the book of Jeremiah, and I want you to see it because it's real clear what it says. In Jeremiah 3, verse 3, it says, Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. That's the bronze brow. You have had a harlot's forehead you refuse to be ashamed. People can do such immoral things and such immoral acts that they get to the point where they'll never be ashamed of what they do. But I wonder down deep inside how many people involved in in sexual sins of that sort begin with a shame but later on they just harden to the point where there's no shame whatsoever. So what the Lord is show, is doing and showing his people what he will do in the future is due to the fact that he is concerned that when he rescues them and destroys Babylon as he said that he would in chapters 46 and 47 they in, in their stubbornness will say that the idols did it rather than God. And that's what we see in verses 3 through 5. Because he says in verse 5, Even from the beginning I have declared it to you, before it came to pass I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, my idol has done them. I'm showing you and I'm telling you that I prophesied these things beforehand and they came to pass to prove to you that it wasn't your idols or it wasn't any men, but it was me. And so God defined their hypocrisy in, their, in, in these first five verses in this manner. He defined their hypocrisy, first of all, as lacking truth. He defined their hypocrisy as, first of all, lacking truth. Not in truth, it says. Secondly, lacking righteousness. Nor in righteousness. Thirdly, in stubbornness. Fourthly, in the lack of shame. Fifthly, in giving credit to the wrong person. Giving credit to something or someone else other than God. Those are the five points... That God deals with as far as their uh, stubbornness and as far as their uh, hypocrisy, I should say. And it all comes back to the issue of truth. It begins with that issue of truth. Uh, here's, a, here's a good question Are we worshipers of God? Are we true worshipers of God? Now, listen. Jesus, in speaking to a woman in Samaria at a well, tells her this in John 4, verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, notice the true worshipers, these are the words of Jesus, they're not the words of Paul or Peter or even me. They're the words of Jesus. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. There are a lot of people today who think they're worshiping God just because they're worshiping God in the Spirit. But are they in the truth? Of course, on the other end, in the other extreme, there are some who just want to worship God in the Word and in the, in the truth, but not in the Spirit. We've been called to be worshipers in the truth and in the Spirit, in Spirit and in truth. And notice in verse 24, Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him, or must worship in spirit and truth. And I believe that He mentions truth last to emphasize spirit and, don't forget, truth. And I'm so thankful that, that Jesus didn't say that he who worships God must worship Him in, in spirit, and maybe truth, or, and or truth, he says, no, spirit and truth. We don't forget the truth that we need to stand upon, which is the Word of God. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, now the Apostle Paul deals with this issue too. Because he says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Why? Because doctrines will, uh, winds of doctrine will take us away from the truth. Of the word of God. And notice he says. By the trickery of men. In the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But he says we need to speak the truth in love. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things. into him was the head Christ. Speaking the truth in love. That's the word of God. I pray that as I give forth God's word. Each and every Sunday and Saturday and Wednesday. Or any, any other time. That the word of God goes forth, but that it will always go forth being spoken in love. In love to you to say, I love you enough. I love you so much that I want you to hear God's truth. And I want you to take it to heart. And if it affects you, if it convicts you, then realize that's because of love. And you're going to see that here tonight in this particular passage. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7. through seven. The Apostle John says, This is the message which we heard from Him and declare to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice what? The truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. Please keep your finger in 1 John. We'll come back to you in, in just a moment. You're probably going to have a lot of fingers in, in the Bible here in just a minute. So that's concerning the issue of, of truth. And then concerning the issues of stubbornness. And of course righteousness, we, you know, we could go on and on about that. But concerning the issue of stubbornness for just a moment. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Notice what God says to His people. He says, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. There's a step that they were to take to, to, uh, to surrender themselves and to yield themselves to the Lord, that being the issue of circumcision. But God says, not the, the circumcision of the flesh, but of the heart. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. I mean, you can circumcise you know, the flesh and, and you know, that has its own pain and, and all, but the point of the matter is, it's the heart that needs to be circumcised. It's the flesh on the heart that needs to be cut away. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, in Hezekiah's prayer, he says, Now do not be stiff-necked, this is uh, chapter 30, verse, uh, verses 8 and 9. Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord. And enter a sanctuary which He has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of His wrath may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive, so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn His face from you if you return to Him. Yield, he says. Turn to the Lord. Serve the Lord. Return to the Lord. Why? Why? Because it is the blessing God wants to give His people. He is God. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of us yielding to Him. He's worthy of us surrendering ourselves to Him. As for the lack of shame, or the lack of shame issue, guilt and shame are sometimes indicators that the Lord is at work in our lives. They're not always a bad thing, by the way. Jesus, in talking about the Holy Spirit, He said this, in John 16, verse 8, He says, And when He has come, He will convict the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. Now that's important for us to understand, that if we've done something wrong, or we're carrying a weight of guilt because we've done something wrong, or or, or just that sin itself is on our mind, and you know, it just weighs heavy on us, you know, God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, is convicting us of that sin. And He's telling us, hey, listen to me. I'm convicting you of sin. You don't have to carry this load of guilt. It's best not to run from this guilt. Respond to the Lord. How? Because first of all, the Lord would have us to admit our sin and then to turn from it to receive His forgiveness. So we we, we keep it inside of us, inside of us, and the weight of that guilt and that sin bears down, you know. And God says, listen, give it to me. First John, I told you to keep your finger there. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now you realize why I didn't go directly into the issue of righteousness because we deal with it in everything. With truth. We deal with it in our stubbornness. We deal with it in our, you know, either we're either righteous or unrighteous when we deal with, with it in our shame. As we see here. And in the next section of our text, the Lord reveals how deep Judah's sinfulness really is. He's revealing again. I I, I need to make it clear. Judah, uh, I should say, the Lord is revealing to the children of Judah the depth of their sin. The depth of their hypocrisy. The depth of how far they are from God. And in verse 6 of our text, going back to Isaiah 48, verse 6. He says, you have heard. See all this. And will you not declare it? Now, simply, you hear. You see. Will you not declare what you hear and see? Will you not declare what I've just told you that I've done? Now, He says, I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning. And before this day you have not heard them, lest you should say, of course I knew them. Have you ever told somebody that is correcting you? I know that. Have you ever, I mean, don't, don't raise your hand. I think we all may have done it at one time or another in our lives, you know. You know, brother, uh, did you know that this is what the Bible says? I know that. We, we know, but you know, well, if you know that, why are you doing it? Or why are you living in that? Or why are you saying that? Or why has this come up? You see, the, you see why he's bringing that up? lest you should say, of course I knew that. Because he's catching them in a lie, you see. Verse 8 says, surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago your your ear was not open. Now, we're going to come back to this verse at the very end. So I'm just kind of reading it here and we'll come back to verse 8. We're going to talk about it in a moment. But the the end of verse 8 says, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously. And we're called a transgressor from the womb. God knew their hearts, you see. God knows our hearts tonight. He knows each and every one of us. That may not be comfortable to some of you. But that's just the way it is. God knows your heart. God knows my heart. God knows Israel. And Israel is called to look back at all the former prophecies so as to bring to mind that everything has happened as it was foretold. That is what this section is saying. But if this is the case, then Israel may not neglect to give testimony to it. Because that's what verse 6 says. You've heard, see all this, and will you not declare it? Israel may not neglect to give testimony to it, but do they? Do they neglect to do it? How many times have we neglected to give testimony to the things of Christ, to someone that we know needs to hear them? Go back to Isaiah 43, verse 10. It says, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. He says, you're my witnesses of that. You are my witnesses. You are my testimonies of what I've done. Now the application of this comes in the second part of verse 6 of our text. There is some sense that the Lord is amazed that the people have seen all of His power, all of His glory, and yet they still stand in stubborn rebellion against Him. It's at this point that I'd like to say how thankful we ought to be that God is very patient with us. But I need to encourage you, quit trying his patience. <laughs> quit trying his patience. They did not know them, is what the text says. They did not know them. The new things that uh, speaks of there refers to uh, to israel 's redemption by Cyrus, uh, as we will see shortly in verse fourteen we 'll get to that in a moment. It, it brings up a question that we need to ask ourselves: If God wanted to start a new thing in my life, you know i 'm saying this, and so we need to ask this question to ourselves: If God wanted to start a new thing in my life, would I see it? Now let me ask it this way. If God wanted to start a new thing in your life, would you see it? Would you see it? You see, God is wanting to do a new thing with Israel, but they didn't see it. Because of their heart. Because of their stubbornness. Because of their sin. Because of their idolatry. God is saying, I want to do a new thing with you. But they didn't see it. And again, they did not know them. They did not know those new things though God showed it to them. If you're still in Isaiah 43, by the way, in verse 19 it says, Behold, I will do a new thing. That's verse 19. I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God loves His people so much that He says, I want to do a new thing for you. Will you not know it? Will you not see it? That's why I ask the question, if God wanted to do a new thing in your life tonight, would you you see it? Would you know it? You know how we're going to know it is because we're in fellowship with God. We're in fellowship with Christ. We are actively reading His Word. We're actively praying. We're actively seeking His face. God, what is Your will for my life? What is it that You want me to do today, right now, where I am? Are we all here tonight because God brought us here? I mean, I I would hope and pray that's the truth. But I don't know. I I didn't see anybody drag any of you in here. Some of you might say, well, they dragged me. But I didn't see that. You're here because God wants you to hear what you're here for. So please hear. Oftentimes, those things might start off as something of a nuisance. is, is that something? When, when new things happen to us, we might think that they're a little bit of a nuisance. Maybe they're, they're just a little bit of annoyance to us. Because it's a little bit out of our norm. God is trying to get our attention with something new. And we're a little bit, you know, annoyed by it. Because new things are that way sometimes. That's just the way it is. Maybe you're transferred from one city to another. God say, "I'm going to do a new thing for you." Yeah, but Lord, do it without having to move me, and me having to get a moving van and all this other stuff, and you know, bring all this stuff over here. Or God is changing your job. He's giving you something better, but then you say, "What? There's more work, Lord." He's trying to do a new thing, but it's an annoyance to you. Or you get a demotion. Oh Lord, what, what was that about? Right. And God's saying, I want to humble you for a minute. Because I have something better for you. The new thing is always an annoyance. It's always a nuisance, or well, At least most of the time it is, right? It's new and it's uncomfortable. We are people that like to be comfortable. We live in a country, in a society, in a culture that exudes comfort. took us a while when we were planning this building and choosing you know what we had to get to build this thing and we wanted to make sure that you were comfortable in those chairs you're sitting on. Comfortable but not too comfortable. And there was one kind of chair, one type of chair that we, we got, you know, we got all these we got all these samples. As a matter of fact, if you ever come to our office and sit in the reception there, all different chairs because they were just samples (laughs) so we put them there, we didn't waste any chairs there was one that was so hard it was uncomfortable but I kept thinking this is the one we should get (laughs) so I don't want anybody comfortable here man, I want you to be listening, you know because you you sit down "Ah." preach it brother and you're comfortable. <laughs> but don't be too quick to dismiss new things. Because it might just be God's blessing to you. It might just be God's blessing to you. It was a song that Phil Keggy sang years ago. It was called Disappointment. His appointment. And he talks about just that very fact that God allows things to happen in our lives not for the sake of just making us uncomfortable but that through that we will draw all our attention to Him so that sometimes our disappointments are really God's appointments for our blessing. To strengthen us, to mature us, to use us as an example of someone that is able to stand in the midst of trials or fires or whatever. But it might be God's blessing to you. I want to, I want to talk to you a little bit about Abraham because in, in Hebrews chapter 11, in the, in the hall of faith there, in Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 10, this is what it says of Abraham. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, look at this, he went out not knowing where he was going. At least if you were getting a job cha- change, you're knowing a little bit of where you're going. Abraham didn't know. God says, get out of where of the Chaldees. And Abraham says, okay, where should, where should I go? He said, just go. Which direction? Just go. North side, it, just go. Didn't he have to trust the Lord? That God was going to lead him? I mean, he wasn't going, one, two, three, you know, know, trying to figure it out. No, he just went. Okay, here we go. God knew where he was going. God knew where he was leading him. Notice in verse 9, it says, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He just trusted the Lord. Oh, how God knows our hearts. He didn't want Israel at any time to say, of course I knew them. I knew You didn't know them. God proved that. He knew that they were treacherous. He knew that they were rebellious. It was the Lord alone who could disclose anything prophesied in the past, and no human or God could know of them in advance. Only God. And that's the point he was trying to make. And then, he, and then on top of it all, he calls them transgressors from the womb. And this is an interesting thing. They were sinners from the womb. In other words, and, and this was why they were so deeply sinful. You were transgressors from the womb. By the way, that's us too. It's talking about us. You know, it's thought by many people. In the church, by the way. It is thought by many people that man is sinful because he commits sinful acts. Think about what I just said. Some people think man is sinful because he commits sinful acts. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. But the truth is, we inherited a sin nature because we descended from Adam and sinned in Adam. That's the truth. Turn to Romans chapter 5. You'll have to keep a finger there. But you'll be back real quick. So I hope you pulled your other fingers out of the other places because we won't need them there. Romans chapter 5, Look at it verse, looking at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. And by the way, it was one man. Not, it, it's not talking about Eve. It's Adam. Adam was responsible. It says therefore, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. What does it say what else does it say in the book of Romans all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Because of one man's sin. Our individual sinful acts only prove that each of us is a transgressor from the womb. But it is not true that man is sinful because we commit sinful acts. That's not the truth. The truth is that our sins, whatever acts we do, prove that each of us is a transgressor from the womb. I mean, just ask yourself these questions. Think about this for a moment. Do, do you have to teach your children how to lie? You didn't have to teach them how to lie, did you? Okay, today we're going to have a class on lying. Lying. You didn't teach them how to lie, did you? Do this? Well, who did it? Who remember they did it, right? Who's they? You know, family circle—the little ghosts—they called they. You know. How about this question? Do you have to teach your children selfishness? Where do the kids get it when they finally start being able to, to, to say things and then, and then latch onto something, they say, "Mine, mine, mine." You didn't have to teach them that? It's I don't." Now, all of you great parents out there that used to think when your child was born, it was the perfect child and never made a mistake. Never had to do diapers. I'll tell you what, diapers right there tells us we ought to sin nature. Well, we won't get into that. But do you understand where we're going with all of this? Just be thankful for this. Be thankful for verses 18 and 19, if you're still in Romans 5. Be thankful for verses 18 and 19. It says, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act. That's a, a different man. That's Jesus. Through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Folks, you might think it's, a, it's an unfair thing. You know, I, I didn't ask to be a sinner. No, you didn't. But then again, nobody's asking you to save yourself. Nobody's asking you to die on a cross and shed your own blood. You know why? Because just as you did not come into this world, you know, you, you, you came in stained by sin, but it was another one, another man, who was perfect, who came to this earth, took on himself the form of, of man and flesh. Perfect. Perfect. In all of his ways. Sinless in all of his ways. And he took our sins for us. As one man transferred sin into us, another man came to take it and transfer us into the kingdom of light and, and, and love and grace. You see. So is it a an unfair thing that you know we're stained with sin? I didn't do it. I wouldn't have done it. Well, see that's a lie already. We would have probably done it our own way. And we would have been singing Frank Sinatra's song, I did it my way. Because that's not biblical. <laughs> the Lord says do it my way and it's a lot better. Getting back to Isaiah. Boy, I've got to really run quick here. And getting back to Isaiah, we now see the Lord's mercy toward His unworthy, undeserving people. Look at verses 9-13. through 13. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger, and for my praise, I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. You know, if God knows how sinful His people are, why would He ever show mercy at all? If God knows how sinful man is, why would He show mercy? We must understand that He does so for His name's sake. That's what this says. He does so for His name's sake. It isn't because Israel deserves mercy, since mercy can never be deserved. When you think about it, mercy can never be deserved. The Lord shows mercy to glorify Himself and to advance His eternal purposes and plans. We're not looking at a picture of an angry person having a bad day when it talks about God being angry. I mean, think about it. If God had that kind of uh, sense like like us, you know, where we have moody days or bad days, right? And He gets angry, we'd be in a lot of trouble. You understand? No, God's anger is... is, 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 You have to understand how different His anger, His wrath is, as opposed to ours. I've actually seen really sweet, nice people get really angry and then explode... And then later come back and say, I'm sorry I did that. See, God never has to be sorry. When He's angry He's, He's already seen the end from the beginning. So His anger is righteous anger. And it's always right and it's always perfect anger at the right time. But He also gives perfect mercy, you see. So we're not looking at this picture of an angry person having a bad day. The Lord's anger is never expressed because He's moody. Because of our sins, we ought to be destroyed. Think about that. That's how precious mercy should be to us. That where we should be destroyed, He has given us mercy. I want to use a verse of Scripture here to express this from, from this very situation where the children of Israel are going to come out of Babylon, go back to, uh, to Israel, go back to Jerusalem, and rebuild. Ezra 9, verse 9. For here He says, For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but He extended mercy To us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. There's mercy being extended to the children of Israel when they come out of Babylon to go back to Jerusalem and to Judah. Now Paul makes it real clear to us in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 7 when he says, "...but God who is rich in mercy..." because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus by the way do you notice the ten, the tense it's past we're sitting now with with Christ that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us Toward us in Christ Jesus. He is even merciful towards them in refining them, as he says, but not as silver is refined. Now, to understand that you need to know this. Here in verse 10 of our text in Isaiah 48, the Lord is simply saying that He has not yet used the same intensity of heat on Israel to refine them as would be needed to refine silver. The furnace of affliction is their captivity and exile. The furnace, of, uh, the furnace of affliction is what he mentions there. And of course, this is done for the sake of the honor and glory uh, of the Lord. When he puts them to this furnace, he's doing it for his glory and for his eternal purposes. And so it brings to mind a quick thought. Listen carefully. Some might complain that the Lord allows trials and refining fires in their lives for his own sake. Why is he doing that? Why is he putting me through this just for his own sake? Listen carefully. We need to remember that we are not at the center of the universe. We are not the center. You know who is? He is. He's the creator of all things. He's the one that can do whatever he wants for his own sake. And you know what he wants to do for his own sake? He loves us by putting us through some of these trials to bring us through to the end, to make us stronger. To make us more wise. To make us more mature. Everything he does has its eternal purposes. Please understand that. Now we have to go quickly. So let's go back to verse 14 of our text. We've got to read this whole section here and then finish up. All of you, it says, assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? Notice, the Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. The Lord loves him. He loves loves his people. He loves Israel. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Now, who is this? That is speaking of, of course, Cyrus, who comes with his arm to be used by God to destroy the Babylonians, to bring the children of Israel out of Babylon. But then notice in verse 15, somebody else speaks. I even I have spoken. Yes, I have called him, I have brought him, and his way will prosper. Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. This is not Cyrus speaking. This is actually the Messiah. It's messianic because he... It says that He has been from the beginning. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. He is from the beginning. The last part of it is that His Spirit has sent sent me. The Lord God in His Spirit. That's not separating the Trinity, by the way. Anyway, in verse 17, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants also would have been like the sand, and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. He says, Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. I wish you had listened and done what i asked you to do, what I told you to do. Isn't it a wonderful thing, though, when you read this old passage, to know that the Lord is motivated by love for his people? The Lord is motivated by love for his people. Even the refining fires are a part of His love for us. Remember that we are designed and purposed to obey and praise the One who created us. That's what we're really designed for. We are designed and purposed to obey the Lord and to praise the One who created us. If you go to Revelation chapter 4, there's a beautiful song, and I have it here in the King James Version because because of uh, just the way we used to sing it years ago. It says, Thou art worthy, O Lord. To receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. That's what we were created for. He's created all things, and for His pleasure, we are created. He loves His people so much that He will do His pleasure on Babylon, punishing that nation to set, that set itself against His people. Verse 15 may, may be a reference to Cyrus, as I said, and, and if so, it will be the last reference of Cyrus and Isaiah. But verse 16 clearly records the words of the Messiah who was from the beginning, as he says. He teaches his people to profit from their affliction. He teaches his people to profit from their affliction. This isn't, as some think, a reference to financial wealth. They'll take this out of context. I've heard some people say, take it out of context. See, the Lord wants wants to teach you how to profit. No, that's not what He's saying here. These people have been in, in captivity. He wants to teach them to profit from their affliction. Verse 18 makes this point clear for us in that the Lord expresses grief over Israel's unfulfilled potential because of their disobedience. You see that in verse 18? Oh, that you had heeded My commandments, then your peace would have been like a river. And your righteousness is like the waves of the sea. Your descendants also would have been like sand. If only. You ever heard that? Have you ever said that? I bet you all of us at one time. If only. You know, we, we think about our regrets in life. If only I had done this. If only I had done that. If only I had not fallen asleep in class. if only. If only. If only they would have obeyed. Peace and righteousness and descendants would have been theirs in abundance. And God's will is good if we'll only heed it. Look at Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. <laughs> to those who are the called according to His purpose. You've got to know what God wants in His purpose. You've got to do what He says. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And that's speaking of worship. Verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then I think one of the greatest verses of Scripture that I believe God has given us is Jeremiah 29, verse 11. And while that is given to the children of Judah, notice it's for us too. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Don't you think that God Himself tonight thinks thoughts toward you? I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. I I took this a few years ago as a life verse for me. It just struck me so strongly that that God just thinks about us and thinks thoughts toward us for peace, for wholeness and completeness in our lives. Lastly, which is the first lastly, by the way. But lastly, we we find a song of deliverance here in verses 20 through 22. Praising the Lord for, for, uh, for His redemption. But there's also a warning. And so let's look at this last portion go forth from babylon flee from the chaldeans with a voice of singing declare proclaim this utter to the end of the earth or utter it to the end of the earth say the lord has redeemed his servant jacob and they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts sounds like when he was taking them through the wilderness isn't it this is how god treats his people when he's in control and when he's in charge and when they listen it says, And they did not thirst when He led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. What they needed, God provided. But notice in verse 22, the warning. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. <clears throat> this is a strong word, by the way, to the Jews in Babylonian captivity to go home. When the, when the way was made, you know, there was over 70,000 Jews that were taken into captivity Uh, initially, into Babylon. You know how many came out the first time? 42,000. There were a lot of people that wanted to stay in Babylon. And some of them had gotten quite a a bit comfortable there in Babylon. Comfortable and complacent in captivity. And it sounds funny, you know, if we continue to understand what Babylon is, or who Babylon is, or what Babylon is, comfort in Babylon doesn't sound too good, if you're a Christian. Folks, we're living today in in a a type of Babylon. Babylon. In the world today, the world system is a type of Babylon, and or Babylon is a type of the world system. And the fact of the matter is, who wants to be comfortable here? But unfortunately, they had become accustomed to Babylon's ways. What is the ways of Babylon? The world. People are being accustomed to the things of the world today, and even Christians say, "Oh, listen, oh, look at what I have. Look at this. Look at that. You know what? It's all going to burn." We need to be looking for the coming of Jesus Christ because He said, I'm going to come for you. And I want you to be ready. But don't pack any bags. Don't pack any bags. It wasn't their true home. Babylon was not their true home. And God is telling them to get up and to run to where they belong. Jesus dealt with this in one of His parables. In Matthew 13, verse 22, it says, Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. That's living comfortable in Babylon. That's living comfortable in Babylon. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word. There are are two last things to mention. You see, lastly was the first lastly. This is the second lastly. Last two things to mention. First of all, the Lord commands His people to declare His praises even to the end of the earth. The world, even today, needs to know how great and, mo- and merciful our God is. We're His witnesses, by the way. But in contrast to those praises, is the destiny of the wicked. There is no peace, it says, for the wicked. There is no peace and no salvation for the wicked, the ungodly in Israel, and all who oppose the true Israel, the people of God. There is no peace, there is no completeness, there is no fulfillment. For those who are wicked. This last verse just underlines the serious nature of failing to listen to God. Failing to listen to God brings you to that place of wickedness. And we are not called to that. We are called to righteousness. We are called to holiness. We are called to live Christ-like. Now, look one last time at verse 8. This is the last Lastly. Go back to verse 8. And we're going to close with this. We're going to do this very quickly because my time's already probably up. Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago your your ear was not open. For I knew that you would deal very treacherously. And were called a transgressor from the womb. I want to deal with the first part of this verse. Because the Jews were not allowed to make other Jews lifetime slaves. And a servant was required to be offered for their freedom at the end of seven years. Why am I bringing this up? Because there, are sometimes, there were sometimes servants that didn't want to leave their masters. In Exodus 21 verses 5 and 6 it says, But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall bring, also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. I don't want to miss this. I don't want you to miss this here. Where it says that uh, their ear was not open there in verse 8 of our text. Their ear was not open. Listen, piercing the ear in Exodus 21, piercing the ear and putting a ring in it was a sign that you were a voluntary lifetime servant of your master. If you heard your master and you served him, you obeyed him, you'd be blessed. Your ear was considered to have been opened. That's why. Their ear was not open, And what was the result? They were disobedient. They did not hear. David was probably referring to this when he wrote about his love for the Lord in Psalm 40 verse 6 when it says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But notice, My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. But he says, My ears you have opened. He's committed himself fully to hearing God. And also Isaiah, Isaiah 50 verse 5, The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious nor did I turn away. You see how it fits? When you make yourself a servant of the Lord, your ear is open, you will listen and you will not miss what God has called you to do. And what God has called you to be. I leave you with this question or these questions. Are you committed to hearing your master? Is your ear open? Have you placed your ear on the doorpost? And have, have you become a bondservant of Jesus Christ? Now that, I'm not telling you to, tonight to, tomorrow that tomorrow you go down to the mall and have somebody pierce your ear. Okay, A lot of you have pierced ears already. So that's not what I'm asking you to do. But have you given your ear to the Lord Jesus Christ as a bondservant that it is pierced through? You know, and that piercing on the door, an all I mean, that, that wasn't like those new, nice little you know, needles that they pierce you with. It, it brought a little blood on, on that doorpost. What else was on that doorpost? The blood of the Lamb. Surrendering yourself to the Lord are you committed to hearing your master my last question is do you love him this much do you love him this much that you'll hear him let's pray